2 Thessalonians 2 in your Bibles. One of the most intriguing and mysterious figures in all of Bible prophecy is that of Antichrist. Introduced in various scriptures by various names, there likely has not been a generation of the church that has not sought to identify one in their generation as the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. The Bible never speaks of the identity of this one, however, only to his characteristics. In fact, the point of the Bible's teaching on Antichrist is not really to inform you about him and quite regularly not to inform you about him so much as to inform you about what his appearance, what his policies, and what his actions will signify, what they will bring into fruition, and then eventually um, how they will end. The Bible almost seems to take for granted that when this particular man appears in the course of history, it will be so obvious that he is who he is, that this man is the Antichrist, that no one will be able to mistake him. Of course, the world will be under great delusion, and we'll talk about that over the next couple of weeks. But, but he will be unmistakable as pertaining to the reflection given of him in Bible prophecy. So much rather... His appearance will serve as the final piece of the puzzle, the final revelation that God has set in motion the final events leading up to His return to the earth. And as we walk through the first five verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 this evening, we're going to seek to draw out of the text God's purpose for having it penned and come to the same conclusion in ourselves that Paul desired the readers of Second Thessalonians to come to, to arrive upon. So I'd like us to jump into the text, and as we do so, as we always ought to do, let's jump in with humble hearts, ready to learn, and eager to obey. Take a look with me, if you would, beginning in verse 1 of Second Thessalonians 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth upon the temple." Uh, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And the context continues. We're going to uh, cover the second half of that context next week. But in, in verses 1 and 2, uh, Paul is seeking to make it abundantly clear that it was never his intent, either by word, words that he wrote, or by spirit, the spirit in which he wrote them, to indicate to these believers that the day of Christ is upon them. And he uses that idea, the day of Christ is at hand. The concept of the day of Christ is one that is synonymous in the Old and in the New Testament with the teaching concerning what the Old Testament regularly calls the day of the Lord. It can reference either the broad period of time initiated by what we believe to be the rapture of the church at the beginning of the seven years of tribulation 
all the way till the day that Jesus Christ um, completes his uh, descent to earth and his feet touch the Mount of Olives. But, but it can also talk about what we might call the day of the Lord proper. So you have the day of the Lord in general, which is the entire time period of uh, the end of things, the pour, outpouring of God's wrath upon the world, the chastening of Israel back to himself. And then you have the day of the Lord proper. And the day of the Lord proper or the day of Christ proper is that day, is that day, whatever day it might be, when Jesus Christ breaks through the clouds and he descends onto the earth in the same way that he ascended after his resurrection and his feet touch the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives cleave in two and the people uh, of Israel run through that valley fleeing from Antichrist, fleeing from those that would seek to destroy them and Jesus Christ then meets those armies in the valley of Megiddo and Armageddon takes place. And so as we look in Scripture, uh, there's, there's temptation to just say, okay, the day of the Lord is the day, the day, day that Jesus returns. But there's some inconsistencies with that as we look at Scripture, where there's some promises that seem to speak of the day of the Lord as potentially as well the entire broad spectrum of the end times program the last seven years. So it could be speaking of either or in context as best as we can tell. Make no mistake though, though we uh, might have to do a little bit of discernment to know exactly what the Bible's talking about when it speaks of the day of Christ or when it speaks of the day of the Lord, we do know this, that the day of the Lord is always characterized in the scripture by violent judgment upon the enemies of the living God. This description matches both the seven years of tribulation and the final judgment when Christ physically returns to this earth. Last week, you recall, as we finished 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we were talking about the wrath of God. And we recognized the, the teachings of Scripture about God's wrath and how the unbelieving world will end up in a literal, fiery place of torment that we call hell and eventually we see in Scripture the lake of fire. The idea of God's wrath and the idea of God's vengeance and God's anger upon the wickedness comes to play when we are dealing with the day of the Lord. When prophecy speaks of the day of the Lord, it's speaking of the initiation of that wrath and that judgment and that anger that we learned about last week. Consider some of these Scriptures with me. In Jeremiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says this, Come up, ye horses, and rage, ye chariots, and let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians and the Libyans that, that handle the shield, and the Lydians that handle and bend the bow. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge him of his adversaries. And the sword shall devour, and it shall be satiate and make drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts hath a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. In Joel chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Sanctify ye a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God, 
and cry unto the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Uh, just one chapter later in Joel chapter 2, verse 11. And the Lord shall utter His voice before His army and his camp is very, for His camp is very great. For He is strong that executeth His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And who can abide it? Joel goes on to say in verse 31, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Are you seeing the theme as prophecy speaks of the day of the Lord? Vengeance, anger, blood, destruction, death, wrath. This is the idea of the day of the Lord. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, as we transition to the New Testament, he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Even just a brief look at the Bible is sufficient for us to see that the day of the Lord is a day of wrath. Wrath that will give way to rejoicing, but wrath nonetheless. And the misconception that Paul wanted to avoid in the church was the idea that the church was somehow a part of those prophetic years leading up to the day of the Lord. Namely, that they were in those seven years of tribulation. And this misconception probably stemmed from the nature of Paul's message in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. And for the sake of those that were not here for our 1 Thessalonians series, let's take a look back at uh, in quick review as to what Paul taught about the end, about the return of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And that will give us a little bit of a better picture of what he's saying. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and what the, this, this misunderstanding might have been. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Paul says, But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For if we believe... Uh, um, excuse me. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, that literally means go before, them which are asleep. Paul teaches um, this church that those who have died in Christ were in fact present with the Lord and would return with Jesus. And the reason why Paul felt compelled to send this to the church, to tell this to the church, was because there had likely been many in the church, or at least a few in the church, who had died in, in a martyr's death in this terrible violence that was upon the church due to their beliefs. And these saints were, um, for possible, uh, several possible reasons, deeply distressed that those who had died perhaps may not be there for the coming of the Lord, um, they thought that, that perhaps they'd still be on the earth, but those who were dead in Christ had missed it, or that there was some disadvantage. Their concern was that there was some disadvantage to those who had died, uh, as opposed to living, because it seems as though the, the, the uh, New Testament church was deeply convinced that they were going to be alive for the second coming of Christ. And then Paul says in verse 16, as we continue in the text, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The dead in Christ will be reunited with a resurrected body after which those who are alive in Christ will be caught up and will be with the Lord forever. And we, when we talk about this concept, we teach the doctrine of the rapture of the church. And we just talked about that, of course, not too long ago in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And if you want to go back and listen to those sermons online, it might benefit you to refresh your mind as to the doctrine of the rapture, why we believe what we believe about the rapture of the church, and when we believe that will be. And we spoke quite thoroughly about it at that time. But don't let the chapter break fool you. The, the scriptures continue in verses 17 and 18 of, of chapter 4. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then Paul says that they should comfort one another with these words. But we continue right into chapter 5. Remember, it's an epistle. The chapter breaks are synthetic. They were not in the originals. It was just one letter in the originals. The chapter breaks were put in later for our comprehension. Sometimes those chapter breaks are really helpful. Other times, it gets into our mind and it breaks up concepts that should not necessarily be broken up. And so we stop reading at the end of a chapter because whatever, we're done for the day. We only read a chapter a day, whatever it might be. But when you pick up the next time, you realize, oh, he's just continuing the thought from chapter 4. I probably should have just kept right on reading. And that's what happens here in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says this in verses 1 through 3. But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when, one, when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Once again, we see here, just like in Second Peter chapter 3, uh, Paul saying that the day of the Lord would come as a thief in the night, come when people weren't expecting it, come um, at, a, at a time when, when one would not expect, but also that it is associated here deeply with the day of wrath, with a day of destruction, with a day of travail. And Paul reminds them that he had taught them before about the events surrounding the end of days, that the day of the Lord would indeed come unexpectedly, that the world would be seeking peace and safety, and that God would reign upon them sudden and inescapable destruction. But he goes on to remind them, remind the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that they are not as those who would be caught up in that destruction that they were different. Notice what he says in verses 8 and 9. We skip a few verses here. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells them that they are of the day. They are not of the night that they are a part of Christ's light, they are not a part of the darkness. And he exhorts them to be serious, to be sober, to be busy about the work of God while they walk in the day because the darkness of wrath is coming, but the darkness of God's wrath is not appointed for them. And it seems that as Paul reiterated these truths in 1 Thessalonians 5, remember he told them he taught them this stuff before, but as he um, ha is reiterating these truths to them, the manner of his writing led many in the church to believe that the second coming was nigh. 
that the day of the Lord was nigh, that they were in those last years, the seven years of tribulation, leading up to the day of the Lord, and that the Lord's coming could literally come at any moment. And this very naturally would have deeply concerned the believers. If they were indeed persuaded in their hearts that the day of the Lord was absolutely at hand, well, if we were persuaded in our hearts that the day of the Lord was absolutely at hand, it would, it would pretty dramatically change the way we live, wouldn't it? What good are any temporary possessions if the day of the Lord is at hand? What good are any earthly relationships if the day of the Lord is at hand? And so it seems possible that there was a group of believers in the church that were really, really getting ready for the end. Like, the end is not just imminent, but the end is here. The end is, is, is nigh at hand. And it was having a dramatic impact upon how they lived their lives. They associated Paul's teaching concerning the day of the Lord here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, perhaps with a warning that it was coming. They took Paul's words and said, see, Paul's telling us that it's coming. He's giving us the signs that we need to be ready because it's coming. And Paul then, as he's writing 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, he immediately begins by saying, don't be shaken, don't be troubled. Don't let your minds be concerned that the day of Christ is at hand. Don't think that you are in this tribulation period. Don't be confused that you are a part of this this time of, of wrath and of judgment. He says, don't be confused in word or by spirit that this is what I was telling you. This was not the content of my writing, nor was this the spirit with which I sent it. Whether you you got this from something I wrote or whether you were reading between the lines and got this thing, okay, I see where he's going. He's telling us about the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is at hand. Extrapolating that from the text, Paul says, don't do that because that wasn't what I meant. So likely that's what, what happened. Is In 1 Thessalonians 5, he wrote about the day of the Lord. Some people read between the lines and said, okay, the day of the Lord's here. We're in trouble. We need to sell everything. Uh, okay, you're engaged. Don't, don't, don't get married. All of these things because the day of the Lord is nigh at hand. Paul says, just don't, don't take that meaning from my writings. So Paul um, then goes on to tell them why. Why they can know for sure that they are not in the last seven years leading up to the day of the Lord. Paul says there are definitive proofs that you are not a part of this last seven years leading up to the day of the Lord. And the piece of evidence that Paul chooses to use is the evidence of Antichrist. That since Antichrist had not been revealed, the day of the Lord could not possibly be immediately at hand. And Paul gives a brief brief and basic order of end times events here that must take place before Jesus Christ comes again, before the day of the Lord proper, the day of Christ proper. And the first event that he says is going to come is that the vast majority of the world will fall away. He says in verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day the day of Christ, shall not come except there come a falling away first. 
this mass apostasy of, a, of the majority of the world is hinted at by Paul as well in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-3, through 3, where Paul writes this to Timothy, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. We know from Scripture that as we get nearer to the end of the age, times will be marked by a general falling away. That's what this text specifically tells us. The general falling away as we get nearer. And we have seen that, have we not? That that uh, barring some great revival in culture, we are not even really slowly anymore. We are working toward a culture that has completely fallen away. But the, the apostasy that Paul speaks of here in verse 3 of Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is even deeper than what he wrote about in First Timothy. This is a mass rebellion against all things that manifest truth in this world. And we'll talk more thoroughly about this mass rebellion, the mass deceit, next week. Next week, we're going to take time to focus in specifically on some of the elements of this mass falling away and some of the characteristics of this falling away. But this week, we're, we're going to focus in on the next portion of verse 3. He says, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. It is within the climate of a dramatic mass falling away, a complete apostasy of the vast majority of the world against the truth, that conditions will finally be right for a man called here that man of sin and the son of perdition, which is a word that literally means ruin or destruction or loss, it will be prime, the world will be prime for this man to appear. And notice the text doesn't say a man of sin, not even the man of sin. It says that man of sin, a specific man. And this specific man is one that Paul clearly expects the church to already know about. The son of perdition. He says, that man. Remember, I've told you about that man. The man of sin. And verse 4 continues to describe the character and the identifying marks of this man of sin. He is a man who, according to verse 4, opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so this man of sin will be a man that as he is completely revealed, he will be completely revealed by a characteristic, by a moment in which he names himself to be God and places himself on the temple, in the temple, in Jerusalem, as God. That's the defining characteristic of this man of sin. And as you think about this, this idea of him opposing God, exalting himself above God, uh, placing himself on the temple of God, claiming to be God. Notice how closely that verse resembles 
the description of the king at the time of the end in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. We taught through Daniel many years ago now. But in Daniel 11.36, the Bible says this, The king shall do, exceed, uh, do according to his will. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. When Satan was cast from heaven, he did so, he was cast from heaven because he sought to exalt himself above God. The Bible tells us that there is coming a man upon this earth one day, a man of such deep pride, a man of such deep personal contempt for the Creator God that he will exalt himself above God. He will blaspheme God. He will speak against God. He will be a man of sin unlike any man of sin that we have ever seen in history. If you're a student of history, we could go through a list of people that we could say are, are men of deep anger and hatred against God. Men that we might say are prime candidates for the kind of antichrist sediment that, that this antichrist is supposed to be. Men like Friedrich Nietzsche, who uh, even wrote a book, Antichrist, where he, he wished he could be the Antichrist when called himself the Antichrist and, and hated God and, and declared God dead and, and that God is, is not necessary anymore. And men like Aldous Huxley and Voltaire and, and even a contemporary, a man still alive today, Richard Dawkins, a man of such anger and contempt against God and such pride in his own self um, that he doesn't even understand his own contradictions. And these people, uh, the, the degree that they exalt themselves against God, the degree that they blaspheme God, pales in comparison to the kind of blasphemy, to the kind of self-exaltation that this Antichrist will one day realize. You can get a picture of just how terrible this man will be, just how rebellious this man will be. And he will become, according to prophecy, the ruler of the Western world empire. Uh, it's seen in prophecy as Rome, the final empire, the final world power, and he will be the leader of the Western world. For many years it has been preached in orthodox circles that there will be a one world government in the end times. It, that's sort of true, but actually not completely true. As all the way to the end of, all the way to the day of the Lord, we find that there are some other governments in existence. Antichrist will be the head of the dominant civilization and the dominant culture of the world, which will be the Western world. It will likely be a conglomeration of European nations along with the United States and perhaps some other, such as Australia and other countries that have have become a part of the Western world today. But we also see in the end times a group, a coalition of kings called the kings of the East. And the kings of the East will likely be made up of China and perhaps Japan as well, the Koreas and, and those Eastern Asian countries. And then we also see a coalition called the, uh, uh, led by a man named the King of the North. And the king of the north will possibly, I would say, likely be Russia. And there will be a coalition with a few of the Middle Eastern countries, Ethiopia, Libya, and, and Syria, and a, and a couple of others as well. Say, so, well, pastor, prove all that. You said a lot of interesting things. Prove it. I can't today. 
That's not within the scope of the sermon. But I've taught it before. And if you go to my Ezekiel series online, it's there. And if you go to the Daniel series online, it's there. All of those, all of that information, and it'll come up again. We'll, we'll circle around the horn, and it'll come up again. I also, I, when I finished my Ezekiel series a little over a year ago, I got into an end time series. We talked about it a little bit there as well, and, and, and we'll, we'll get there again. But that's beyond the scope of our sermon tonight. But my series in Daniel 9 through 12, and my series in Ezekiel 30 to 40. Um, would be the ones that you'd want to listen to to focus in on the different coalitions and the different elements of end times prophecy. But what we do know is that the Antichrist will be the head of this dominant Western world empire. He will be the most powerful man in the world without question. And Daniel 9 tells us that the role he plays in the last seven years of history leading up till Jesus Christ's Return leading up till the day of Christ will be prominent. His role will be prominent. Look what Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27 say. And after three score and two weeks, a score is a 20, so three score would be 60. So after 62 weeks, and uh, in this particular prophecy, again, I proved it when I was there, a week would be a year, um, or um, seven years, excuse me. So after 62 weeks, or 62 sets of seven years, Messiah will be, shall be cut off. That's when Messiah was crucified, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come. This is the same as the king in Daniel 11. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And um, this would be Rome, the empire of Rome. And the end thereof shall be with a flood and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he, that's the prince that shall come, this prince that shall come shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That would be seven years. And in the midst of that week, in the middle of those seven years, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Sacrifices being done in the temple of God to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. In verse 26, Antichrist is called the prince that shall come. The people of the prince that shall come were the ones that destroyed the temple. We know in 70 AD the temple was destroyed and it was destroyed by the Roman Empire. And so the prince that shall come will come out of the revived Roman Empire or we would say a revived Western world Empire, as the Roman Empire never really was conquered, it dissolved, and the culture of the Roman Empire is still around today. It's called the Western culture. Western culture began with Rome, and we are still living in a Western civilization today. So Antichrist is the prince that shall come, the prince that shall lead Western civilization. And in verse 27, the Bible says that this man will confirm a covenant with many for seven years, for one week. This is the seven-year covenant that Antichrist will orchestrate in order to secure peace in Israel. It will likely be a brokered um, covenant between Israel and Arab nations the Arab nations that today are incessantly trying to destroy Israel. And when this peace treaty is accomplished, this man will be hailed as a peacemaker. 
of unrivaled proportions. We're talking about his name on magazines, Time Man of the Year, probably Time Man of the Century, Nobel Peace Prizes, statues in his honor. This man will be hailed as the greatest peacemaker the world has ever known. We who understand the deep roots of the conflict in the Middle East can likewise say that indeed for a man to broker peace in the Middle East will be a tremendous feat. And without question, a part of this covenant will be the ability of the Jews to conduct sacrifices in their temple again. Whether the temple will have already been built before these things come to pass, or whether a part of the covenant will be that they are allowed to build their temple on the Temple Mount again, we know that sacrifices will be reinitiated within the first three and a half years of this covenant of peace that Antichrist makes uh, for the world with Israel. And it will indeed be exactly like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, that they shall say, peace and safety. This man will be hailed as the greatest peacemaker ever. There might be uh, publications that say, is this the end of war as we know it? Has civilization finally gotten beyond war? Have we finally come to the place where we can all live at peace? They will hail this man as the coming of peace. They may even give him the name, the Prince of Peace. I would not be surprised. And those of you who understand what Orthodox Judaism is looking for in a Messiah today, they are looking for a man. If you were to talk to an Orthodox Jew about when they would know Messiah is come, they will say he will be a man that will fight for Israel, but he will be a man that will bring about world peace. And, they, they, and if you ask them, they will tell you, when we find a man that brings about world peace, we will believe that we have found our Messiah. Orthodox Judaism is waiting for their Messiah because they rejected their true Messiah. And the one who will fill those shoes for the first three and a half years will be Antichrist. So people will say, peace, People will say safety, but it will not last. The second half of verse 3 says, sudden destruction will come upon them. But something's going to happen in the middle of that week. And this event is going to change everything. As we read in Daniel 9, Verses 26 and 27, the Scripture said, He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of that week, He shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. This man will break his covenant with Israel. He will cause the sacrifices that they were allowed to be doing. He will cause them to stop altogether. And the Scriptures say that He will bring about an abomination and make it desolate something that we learn today as the abomination of desolation. And this abomination of desolation will initiate a campaign of violence and destruction of the Jewish people unlike any that has ever been seen in the history of the world. You say, Pastor, what about World War II? Unlike any that has been seen in the history of the world. Pastor, what about what Haman tried to do in, that, in, the, in the days of Persia? Unlike any that have been seen in the history of the world. What about the 
um, Catholic Inquisitions and the Crusades, unlike any that has been seen in the history of the world, Antichrist will, the violence that he will bring against the people of Israel will be unparalleled. And as we're seeking still to put all of this together, I'm, I'm trying to give you a broad overview of the teaching of this man, Antichrist, the character that he has. Consider Jesus Christ's warning in Matthew chapter 24. So we see a Paul speaking in 2 Thessalonians 2 about this man who will exalt himself against God and place himself upon the throne. Then we went to Daniel 11.36 and we saw the man who it will be a king and will exalt himself against all gods and will um, blaspheme the God of gods. But where, Pastor, where is this idea of him placing himself back on the throne? Well, we saw in Daniel 9.27 that in the midst of this week there will be an event called the abomination of desolation. Now we look at Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16, and the Scriptures, Jesus' warning says this, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. And he goes on to say, run for your lives because it's about to get ugly. Jesus Christ said the abomination of desolation is still coming and this abomination of desolation is going to stand in the holy place. Paul teaches that this standing in the holy place will not be enough. He will sit himself upon the throne in the holy place. He will declare himself to be God. And Jesus says, on the day where this man declares himself to be God, that's the day that all of these events are going to click into place for Israel. They are going to recognize on that day that this man who brokered this peace treaty, that they saw as their Messiah, that they hailed as the coming Prince of Peace, is in fact their enemy. He is the one that has been warned about in the Old Testament, warned about in the New Testament. He is the one that in Daniel chapter 9 is called the abomination of desolation. He is the one in Daniel 11.36 who is the one who exalts himself against God and blasphemes the God of gods. He is the Antichrist and they will say, oh no, Jesus Christ was our Messiah. And that is going to be the beginning of the chastening that brings them back to Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They will flee for their lives from this man called the man of sin, called the son of perdition or the son of destruction. And this is exactly what Paul says this man of sin will do at the end of this age. Verse 4, he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And then Paul says in verse 5, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? Do you remember I told you what was coming? I told you what, what, what would be the signs? You, you don't need to fear that you're in the midst of this because the signs haven't come to pass yet. Not to say that they're not imminent, but it hasn't come to pass yet. So you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be concerned. Practically speaking, logically speaking, however you want to say it, if the Antichrist has not been revealed, if there is no seven-year covenant of peace in Israel, if there is no temple for sacrifices to begin, uh, though at this point the temple probably had not yet been destroyed again, if there is no united leader over the entire Western world in this context, then the second coming of Christ is not yet 
at hand. Well, the question then becomes, what does this mean for us? I told you next week we'll begin to think a little bit more about culture and where our culture is headed and how we are heading toward this event. But we'll get there next week. For this week, I would like us to draw out of the text the the very message that Paul had for the Thessalonian believers. And the message is this that there is still time left on this earth. Now, we understand the imminency of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ means that He could indeed come at any moment. It's one of the most intriguing paradoxes in Scripture and in life that the value of time in the mind of a person grows more and more as he loses more of it. The older I get, the more I value time. Unfortunately, the more I value time, the less time I have left. The farther one is down the timeline of his own existence, the greater value that time takes on. And Moses recorded a prayer in Psalm 90. We read it not too many weeks ago in our scripture reading. And in verses 10 through 12, Moses prays this. He says, the days of our years are threescore years and ten. That would be 70 years old. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, eighty years old, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. Even the strongest of men have to live this life in labor and in sorrow. Matt and I were changing out some components to a vehicle of ours this past week. And I tell you, Matt's a big guy and uh, I'm not a big guy, but between us, we're both fairly strong guys and uh, we're both still fairly young guys. But we learned on that day that even in the years of our strength, it's still years of labor and of sorrow. I told Matt that uh, if he hadn't been there that day, they would have just found me in the garage, curled up in a ball crying. Because it was a day of labor and of sorrow. And Moses says that, that the days of our strength, even the days of our strength, are days of labor and our sorrow. And he says it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. And then notice what he says here at the end. So teach us to number our days, that we might apply our hearts unto wisdom. Lord, teach us to number our days and apply our hearts, apply our time to wisdom, to those things which are best, to those things which are right, to those things which are lovely and righteous and good. We who understand the doctrine of the imminency of the rapture recognize that Christ could indeed come at any moment. He could catch us away to be with our Lord. We do not know when it is. It may be the next moment, but what we do know is it's not this moment because we're still here. And as Paul wrote to the Thessalonian believers, his encouragement to them, and he used the teaching of Antichrist to do it, his encouragement to them with the truth that he had was not to say that the Lord's return was not imminent, but that the day of the Lord was not yet at hand. He didn't say it wouldn't come soon, but just that the things that needed to take place for the day of the Lord to be at hand were not yet come. And so they were still on earth. They still needed to be thinking about living on this earth for Christ. 
and ministering. They shouldn't be packing their bags just yet. They need to be ready, but they need to occupy till he comes. The end times is a fascinating subject and our lives should be lived in light of the moment-by-moment possibility that Christ will call us home and then the son of perdition will be revealed and the end will begin. But knowing what is to come, it is our privilege to not worry about what is to come and rather to live our lives motivated by what is to come but keeping our minds on the here and on the now keeping our minds on the reality that there are men and women in this world who need the gospel of Jesus Christ, keeping our minds on the reality, parents, that we have children that we need to raise up to serve the Lord, that we need to assume that we can hope that Christ might come at any moment and we know that He could come at any moment. We yet need to raise our children with the deep understanding that they might be facing the world as adults and they need to be equipped for what the world will throw at them. Antichrist is coming, but you serve the true and living Christ. There will be a falling away. You need to make sure you're not a part of it. Number your days. Find them few. Apply your hearts unto wisdom. Live these days not for yourself, but for the one who has redeemed you. Endure with patience. Serve in love. Lay up eternal treasure. Because eternity is indeed coming, but Antichrist is not here yet. And that means that the day of Christ is not yet at hand. So wait for it. Look for it. But live for Christ in this earth. And as we do so, we can be at peace. Let's close and pray.